Hello, beautiful people. I'm pleased to announce that the original cast live will be making its triumphant return to the Flying V Awesomeathon Sunday, April 8th at 4 p.m. in downtown Bethesda. I've been toying with the live show format and I'm excited for you to see the new show. The show is part of the second Flying V Awesomeathon, their 24-hour fundraiser, and I'm so happy to be a part of it again. Go to unknownpenguin.com/live for details. Tickets are first come, first served, and free. But when you come down, maybe you'll give some money to Flying V because they're awesome and you should. And they're doing a show of mine this fall. And you should come see that too. But for right now, come to the Awesomeathon and donate money. Again, the original cast live at the Flying V Awesomeathon, April 7th, 4 p.m. Cheap is free, but donate to Flying V because they're awesome. Unknownpenguin.com slash live for details. Before we get started, I need to thank another Patreon patron. Thank you to Brad and Katie at the Decomposition Podcast, our sister podcast in the Garden State. It's been a joy getting to know both of you. And all you listeners out there should be listening to Decomposition Podcast. It is a joy on my Monday morning. Want to get thanked on the air? Just go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and tell me I had you at hello. There are a few tiers of patronage, but they all come with access to our bonus monthly podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. Our pilot episode on Moulin Rouge is available on this feed so you can sample before you buy. This month, our movie is the greatest movie musical ever made with special guests Lee Liebeskind and Liz Maestri. That's right, we're talking about the 2003 American Idol motion picture, from Justin to Kelly. If you haven't seen it, run, don't walk. It's it's absolutely incredible uh, on every level. And I can't wait to talk about it with Lee and Liz. And we're just going to, uh, it's the best movie ever. Again, patreon.com slash original cast pod. All right, here's the show. Brad is noticing me having uh, like diff- difficulties with <laughs> headphones. He was like, try mine. No, I wanted my own back. So I'm sorry for the kerfuffle. <laughs> I'm sure you'll cut That's it out. Fine. No big deal. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll leave it in. Leave it in. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. Well, I've got two guests today. Sort of. We'll get we'll get to that in a minute. First, it, my guest is a high school theater teacher and podcaster. It's Katie Whitley, everybody. Hello. And also Brad. Hi, Brad. Hey. <laughs> I'm also. <laughs> Who is a also a podcaster, podcaster. Yeah. right? And between and well, when you put you two together, we get decomposition podcast, whom you've heard on this feed and hopefully have heard on me on their feed, defending the honor of Billy Joel. Oh um, yes. And. Uh, and now we're here, but there will be, well, maybe there'll be some honor defending. I don't know. We'll see how it goes, because Katie, we're, you're here to talk about... Cabaret. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Fremda. Étranger, stranger. Glücklich zu sehen. Je suis enchanté. Happy to see you. Bleibe, rest, stay. Welcome, bienvenue, welcome. In cabaret, au cabaret, to cabaret. The 1998 cabaret. Yes, the perfect version. (laughs) Ooh, bold. Bold statement. The perfect version. How did cabaret come into your life? So... I think around the time that the revival was opening, I started to see the movie pop up on the History Channel, actually. It would be on the History Channel late hmm. at night when I was in high school and I was supposed to be asleep. And like anytime I was flipping the channels, I found the movie, I would watch it. And then I kind of, I was a big, you know, Broadway fan and the revival was happening on Broadway. And so that was the album I ended up buying. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, everybody had this album. Oh, it, yeah. It's sort of my memory. Yeah. And then it was the first uh, play I was cast in at UMBC in their theater department. So then I was really? in it when Who, I was. Who'd you play? I was one of the Kit Kat girls. Um, okay. And I was so I was one of the two ladies as well. That's how I was featured. And I did some ah. very questionable things. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause, yeah, because every production of it, it's so funny that if you look at pictures of the 1960 whatever year that was uh, i think original. it's 66 66 66 thank you brad um brad whitley everybody uh you uh Nailed it. if you look at those pictures though it's very 
sedate. Like yes. it, it, the cabaret scene, like as Joel Gray as the MC is in a tuxedo. He's very made up, but it's mm-hmm. kind of clownish and very non-threatening and 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 very asexual. Like yes. he just he could be either gender. And the revival, <laughs> the Sam Mendes uh, Don Re- Playhouse revival, um, isn't that? No. It is uh, much more. Uh, I don't. What would, word would you use to describe? I guess risque or in your face. Sure, or in your face. Up, that's probably yeah. Kind of upfront about the sexuality of the time, rather than yeah. subtle about it. Right, not subtle. It's certainly it's not subtle. Definitely and it, not subtle. But what's so funny about it is it took a show that was like a huge hit, cabaret, as you say, big Broadway hit, big movie, Academy Award winning movie. And then, like, completely now, every version of Cabaret you see since then is based pretty much on the Alan Cumming MC from '98. Like, nobody does the tuxedo anymore. That's not that's not how you do it, right? Um, But this is a good point to ask the simple question. Of course, can you summarize the plot of Cabaret? Um, I'm going to confess at this point, I could not. (laughs) 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 Like from the top of my head, I don't. Can I give Can I give a joke answer to that? Sure. Sure. <laughs> Give us a joke answer. Well, it's very clearly about a pansexual nightclub host and an elderly Jewish produce dealer <laughs> sexing it up in pre-Nazi Germany. You're so you're so much closer to right though than you like. Than it's, than it's, I was gonna say you're you're not wrong. No, so, all those specifics are correct. <laughs> the generalities we need to kind of work on, but the specifics are absolutely correct. I think I can summarize it. I mean. The main plot is Sally Bowles is a girl who's from Mayfair, London, who's living in Berlin, who's performing in a cabaret club during kind of the just pre-Nazi era, like early 30s. And she gets fired from the club. So she starts living with this American guy, Cliff, who's a writer. And through that experience, we meet um, Fräulein Schneider, who's her landlady. And the landlady's subplot is that she's getting into a relationship. She's an elderly lady uh, with an elderly grocer named Herr Schultz. And we keep kind of flip-flopping back and forth between the happenings in the cabaret club and that kind of Berlin scene and the real-life happenings in Fräulein Schneider's house, mainly with Sally Bowles and with Cliff, but then also with Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz. He um, proposes marriage, and then towards the end of Act One, at their engagement party, you have tomorrow belongs to me and all of a sudden this whole idea of the Nazis is revealed and in the second act that unravels with the breaking up of Herr Schultz who's Jewish and um, Fräulein Schneider but then kind of everything at the cabaret club falling apart as well that's the best I can do that's pretty good thanks that's not bad (laughs) that's not bad Um, because it is much more complicated sure <laughs> I, I think mean, people people realize uh i mean i think the only thing you kind of missed was that the songs in the cabaret comment on the action that we're seeing as it goes along not in a direct way but i mean each song is a sort of grotesque sort of representation of what you just saw so you have right. like two ladies like you mentioned before happens after um what Sally it, moves into Cliff's yeah, what apartment. Is, oh, gosh, I just forgot yeah. what that song is called. Um, isn't it Wouldn't It Be Lovely? Or not Wouldn't It Be Lovely, obviously. Uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> wouldn't It Be Lovely? Maybe this time? or Oh, Perfectly Marvelous. Perfectly Marvelous. Perfectly marvelous. Perfectly marvelous. That's what I was yes. trying to come up with, and I came up yes. with a completely different song. So, yes. yeah, it comes right after Perfectly Marvelous, where she's right. saying, like, oh, wouldn't it? We'll just tell people I have a perfectly marvelous roommate. And then you get the interlude of... Um, everybody yeah. should have a perfectly marvelous roommate. I have two perfectly marvelous I have two, roommates. Right. And then you have I mean the most pointed being is if you could see her. Yes. In act 2 after the ma- after Herr Schultz uh and the the engagement dissolves mm-hmm. and it's the MC uh dancing with a gorilla <laughs> who is supposed to stand in in this version finally is the way it was intended. The last line of the song is I understand your objection. <laughs> I grant you the problem's not small But if you could see her 
It's it's not a subtle production, no. as we said before. Um, but that to me, when I was, I think, 17 years old and I saw this on Broadway for the first time, was an absolute shock to me. And I know it comes right after the reprise of Married. And mm-hmm. I know that's when the brick comes through the window and, and the engagement is going to break up. And Herr Schultz is trying to say, it's just children. It's nothing. But we've right. already had Tomorrow Belongs to Me. And we know the Nazis are coming. And yet when that gorilla comes out on stage and you have that kind of vaudevillian sounding song, when I was a 17-year-old girl and I watched it, I didn't expect him to say... She doesn't look Jewish at all at the end. I I was appropriately shocked, you know. It yeah. had the right effect well, it's on me. Well, pretty shocking. Yeah, no, it's pretty shocking. Uh, and they had to change... That was Kander's... Kander and Ab obviously wrote this. The uh, That was his original lyric, and he had to change it in the original Broadway production due to protests to she wouldn't be a, look like a miskite or some version of that, be a miskite, mm-hmm. look like a miskite at all. It also got, like, this version is sort of, in a, has a lot of famous songs from it, but it, it never, never in the same version. It's wildly different from the original Broadway production as I look at the song list here. Yes. This is why I think it's the perfect version. Okay, why do you think it's the perfect version? So you have the original Broadway cast, and then you have the movie, and then... There's like a 1987 revival that messed around mm-hmm. with adding in some songs from the movie and taking out some of the other songs. And then I think they revived it in 93 in London and that played right. around with it a little bit more. And then we ended up with a 98 revival where I think they got rid of all the songs that would feel kind of outdated or too tame or frankly, the songs I just don't personally perf- personally care for like the telephone song i don't care about that (laughs) the they they got rid of all the songs to me that that are the most 60s musical theater songs right um the telephone song being kind of this a a bizarre number like if you I, i i remember i i knew the revival got the original album listened to it and the telephone song just like knocked me down um (laughs) Because it comes, it, it feels very, it just feels like it comes out of nowhere. It feels a lot like it belongs in one of their, uh, well, their, actually, I was going to say one of their earlier musicals, but they'd only written one musical together before this, which was um, Floor of the Red Menace, also starring oh. Liza Minnelli. Um, and it feels very traditionally Broadway, as does, like, So What, um, to me. Yeah. Uh, Fräulein Schneider's first song. What? For the sun will rise and the moon will set And you learn how to settle for what you get It will all go on if we're here or not So who cares, so what? So who cares, so what? If you're going to take out the telephone song and what we're going to get in return is mine hair, which is so right. much more fun. This is um, so funny to me that like mine hair replaced don't tell like don't tell mama is Sally's first song. Yes. They took it out for the movie and replaced it with mine hair. And then the show decided that they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Yes. And they just put both <laughs> and didn't make a decision kind of I- in that moment. I kind of think that it's justifiable Um, because I think Don't Tell Mama sets her up as this Mayfair, the toast of Mayfair personality. I mean, Mayfair Mm -hmm. isn't, you don't know Sally Bowl, none of us know Sally Bowl's real backstory, but the story she's telling is I'm in a rich, affluent girl from London who's just having a romp here in Berlin in a cabaret club. I mean, Mayfair is historically one of the most affluent areas in London. Right. And I think Don't Tell Mama tells that story and introduces mm-hmm. her that way. And then Mine Hair introduces like the um, dirtier side of Sally Bowles or something. I didn't come up with the best word possible there. Or the the bolder side of yeah, it Sally is bold. Bowles. Uh, yeah, bold is probably correct. I yeah. mean, because the whole thing's dirty, so I wouldn't sure. Like, say, it's not really the dirtier side. I was even, don't tell Mama is pretty dirty. It you is. Know? It, 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 so, uh, yeah, mine hair is a little. I mean, it's, it's they replaced "Don't Tell Mama" with mine hair uh, 
I think because Liza Minnelli was cast as Sally Bowles and mm-hmm. she is not British. Right. Um, like and not even cl- really not even a little bit. <laughs> an American doing Don't Tell Mama is not going to read the same way. Right. It doesn't. Yeah, it did doesn't quite work. Did she not do it in the movie? Did she not do Don't Tell Mama? No, it's just mine hair. Because I want to I want to point out just an interesting little factoid that I'm sure was inspired by Cabaret. I don't know if you've ever listened to the album The Black Parade by My Chemical Romance, New Jersey Natives. Not. By the oh, way, I want to say there. It's actually a really good It's an album. excellent it's an excellent okay. album actually. It's like punk rock queen, I think. Um Oh, all right. And there's a song on there called Mama and that song is definitely inspired by, at the very least, the first part of Don't Tell Mama from Cabaret. Hmm. And on the album, they have Liza Minnelli doing guest vocals throughout that song. Oh. So I was, I was certain that that was the reason why. When I first heard Don't Tell Mama, which was admittedly after I had heard the song Mama by My Chemical Romance, right. I was certain that that's where that inspiration came from. Well, it could be inspired by it. That's true. I, she did play yeah. the part, you know. Yeah, right. It, it and and just not. They just used the other song. Like had her record the other song. Yeah. Um, that's funny. I have to look that up because I have never heard that. It's a great song. It's very very dark and weird and gets heavy, but it still has that same kind of. Uh, I don't know. It's definitely inspired by that like pre World War Two era kind of like German cabaret song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I gotta say, I think that this musical does a great job of like invoking the music of the time. Oh you yeah, yeah. Um, from oh, gosh, yeah. from like the opening like oompa oompa of you know the the yeah the intro that Kurt Vile kind of kick yeah yeah it, it's just yeah it, you know immediately that you are in 1930s Berlin right so very and and all the cabaret songs feel the same way and the Tomorrow Belongs to Me also well chilling. yeah like, I mean. For a different, for a different reason, for a very yeah. different reason. <laughs> yes. I was very, very different. I was trying to look up "Tomorrow Belongs to Me," and I couldn't really find any definitive answer on its origins. It seems to be a lot of it, there seems to be a lot of it argument a, about its origins that it's a it folk is a candor, song, but well, not necessarily no, it, a Nazi song. It is a candor and ebb song. The 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 sort of come down on it is that it is a candor and ebb song. Um, that they wrote for this musical, but they wrote it very much in the style of traditional German um, music, which yes. is, you know, and so it feel, they got it, it, it's one of those things that I think is actually a problem because they got it so right that the irony is lost on a lot of people um, because it has become a song that has been covered by neo-Nazi bands and is played at neo-Nazi rallies yeah. as a like pro-Nazi anthem. And I, in Googling around about this this morning, stumbled onto a, a, um, uh, uh, two neo-Nazi websites um, uh, accidentally that uh, took me a little while to figure out like what, who, are, who have this long propagandic thing about how it's not actually written by these two Jewish guys that they stole it. It's a real German song and ah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of misinformation. And I think that, I mean, Fred Ebb is obviously passed. Um, I think John Kander has been unwilling to kind of talk about it sure. a lot. Um, he has made a few comments about how he thinks it's a little ironic that it's like these neo-Nazi groups or bands are playing the song and paying him royalties. Um, <laughs> and while I would agree with that, in sentiment, <laughs> um, it would chill me deeply if I wrote a song that neo-Nazis thought was good. Right. You know? <laughs> right, sure. Not even good, but like... Inspirational. Inspirational. That's There we go. Yeah, if, if I wrote a song, any song, and it was in, like it made neo-Nazis feel good about themselves, I, I might burn it, kill it with fire. Like right. I might just like try to kill it with fire. So, yeah, it, it feels like it... I mean, the scene is fascinating, and it's a really good song, obviously. In the movie, it's a very chilling yes. moment when the little boy sings it uh, I think, in the cafe. 
I think that's kind of how it ended up the way it is in the revival because you have the boy singing mm-hmm. it in the movie on the gramophone and yeah. that is so chilling and so then in the revival they have the first time you hear it is on that gramophone That is so chilling. So this is where let, let's 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 put that literature degree to use here, Katie, and let's figure something out. Okay. And Brad, you can also jump in whenever you want. Appreciate so it. So I I I always thought, and this mainly comes from the movie, which is my my preferred version of this musical. Ah. Um, because I'm a huge a I'm a huge Bob Fosse fan, and B I I lots of other things. But the um, in the movie. I always got the sense that the MC represented Hitler. And that mainly comes from the finale where he right. stares right at the camera and says, see, everything's better now. And the whole thing's like the whole crowd is behind him is full of Nazis. And it's this like he has been the sense that he has been duping us this whole time. Like we've been duped by this short little man in a suit into being happy when actually we should have been terrified and running away. And... That's always who I thought the MC represented was that sort of, if not Hitler, that that complicit side of like what Nazis were good at, which was tricking, you know, entertaining people and tricking people and getting people to join them. In this revival, that is explicitly not the case. Right. right. Did you did you have you seen it since the revival? I have not seen it. Nope. No, I've never seen it live. I will, I will say yeah. we uh, we got to go see it at uh, Studio 54 a couple years ago when Alan Cumming and Emma Stone were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was exactly the same as the way they did right, it. Right, it's the same production. Previously. Yeah. Um, right. And that that last scene... So <laughs> This threw me for such a loop that I'll worry about later. But uh, So they changed it so that at the very end, you know, Alan Cummings is dressed in this, like, prisoner outfit with the right, concentration camp yeah. yeah yeah with not only the uh star of david on it but also the pink triangle and so when he says you know everything is better like it's just this dead-eyed stare into the crowd and you right. see all these people that are about to be massacred by nazis right, uh, right. well and then really there's like I think it was three, like three hits of a drum and it, the yeah. way they staged it. And you don't really hear it this way at the end of the cast album. It's much like softer at the end of the cast album. When you see mm-hmm. it, it's like he's being Gunshots. shot. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like in this production, especially, I mean, by playing up uh, the sexuality, the the um, sort of omnis pansexuality, of the band and the cabaret performers and the MC and Cliff and Cliff right who is is bisexual, bisexual in in the movie in every version since the movie he's been bisexual and he was bisexual in the original stories that mm. this is based on I have a, I am a camera um that was obviously excised for the 66 Broadway production because there's a lot of things you could do in 1966 on Broadway but that was not one you of them You couldn't do it all You couldn't do everything uh and so that the, they then become come to represent those members of society purged by the Nazis in Germany instead of representing the sort of fascist elements which I think they represent in the film but this brings up kind of a weird problem for me because in tomorrow belongs to me he's spinning the gramophone this the little boy soprano sings the song and then he finishes the line That really muddies the waters to me. 
I about th- what's going on. I think that the MC sort of represents the transition in the nation, which be- mm. which becomes him representing um, those individuals who would have been, as you put it, purged uh, in mm. the second half. So in the first half, it feels like he's just kind of leading us through the subtleties of what's happening. But in the second act, he takes it on more personally because it's not until after if you could see her that you see a shift in his character. And all of a sudden, even when he's greeting the audience, I think the the first time he says, because, you know, Alan Cummings always says that thing. He goes, ladies and gentlemen, every yes. time. <laughs> but the And it gets a little sadder and sadder until the final time he just says ladies and gentlemen uh, pretty right. straightforward and he also in that section you know the next time we really see him after if you could see her is i don't care much which is my favorite song in the show right and, and is a very stark um contrast comment to yeah the way you've seen the character before and to what's going on not just with the characters, but really what's going on with the nation at that time. I don't care much is not in the original Broadway recording. It's not. I I read And it. I don't Yeah, go ahead. I read actually just for today that mm-hmm. it was supposed to be in the original Broadway production and they took it out. But the um the intention right. was always for it to be there. It was written for the original production and not used. Okay. And then put in and it starting in 87 it says. Yes. Here. So that yeah yeah because that is the only that that's a moment of the of the MC being a human right like in in a in for the very first time is is sort of like he, all of his extravagance is kind of laid bare and when you don't have that when you don't have it in the film because the film also cuts any song that doesn't take place inside the cabaret with the exception of tomorrow belongs to me right um and uh it it gets very it, you you end up with a, a an MC who is almost not really a, like you kind of wonder if he's actually there sure. with the exception of in the film uh, with the exception of when him and Sally Bowles sing money um, which is my favorite version of that song really? is Joel Gray and Liza Minnelli the I like a lot I like this version a lot the original song it should say also that was not in the original Broadway production there's another song called the money song which is the similar sentiment but is a lot more broadway-y right the uh then in the movie they rewrote it as money the song you know now mm. and it's sung by Liza Minnelli and Joel Grey in this really weird syncopated echo thing that they do that and this amazing dance they do. when you haven't any cold and you have any freeze in the winter and you curse to the wind that you face when you haven't any shoes on your feet you post in his paper and you look 30 pounds underweight when you go to get a word of advice from the fat little pastor he will tell you to love them more but when longer comes to rap at the window at the window who's there hunger which I that, love uh, too. I want to throw that in. Huge Oh, it's so and that's another thing. I mean, this show has so many, like, what's super unfortunate about this show, the history of the show to me, is you know who directed the original Broadway production? I do not. Hal Prince. Really? Maybe you've heard of him. Do you know who <sighs> choreographed the original production? This might be a little more obscure. No. It's Ron Field is the guy's name, who is a, not equally famous as Hal Prince, but is a a 
legit Broadway choreographer. And if you went <laughs> and asked a hundred Broadway fans, like who choreographed and directed the original cabaret, ninety-eight of them would say Bob Fosse. I would have and, said Bob Fosse choreographed it. Yeah, and or at least Bob Fosse choreographed it. it. He, I mean, it's just one of those like. Hal Prince does the, the biggest thing Hal Prince seems to have done for this show legacy wise is the mirror curtain, which the show opened with. Yes. In 66. Did it open that way at Studio 54? Yes. Yeah. Um, and is a stunning visual thing. Even in the movie, it opens with the mirror curtain, which is just like remarkable. And that seems to be Hal Prince's lasting legacy on this show. Fosse, when he did the movie, his choreography has influenced every production that, I, that I've that i seen pictures of since. I mean, wh- you can see it very clearly if you watch the video of them performing Vilkeman uh, from the 98 revival. Right. He's all over. The, his hands and legs and hips are all oh, over that choreography. Having seen... So I've seen it on Broadway three times. I saw it twice. Wow. I saw it twice in that period, uh, in that first six-year period, and they were really close together. I saw it in like 99 and 2000. And right. then I was in it in a UMBC production in two, uh, 2001. And then Brad and I went to see the Broadway revival of the revival in, I guess we went 2015, February 2015 we went. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, I love wow. it. I just think it is so fantastic. Uh, I wish you had seen it. Li- I really do. I, would, um, I wish I'd seen it as well. The way that they set it up so that it is this cabaret club and you're sitting at a little table and you feel so close to the stage, you're totally uh, surrounded by the world. First time I've ever had a waitress at a musical, too. I want to just <laughs> throw it. No. <laughs> no, I've seen exactly zero dinner theater. Yes, and, and I saw it in Studio 54 three times. One of I those times was... was with Brad. I think this was the show that brought Studio 54 back like, I think as so. a theater venue. Like, I, I know it never really, I mean, it did close, obviously. Um, when, do you guys remember when Studio 54, by the way, was like a thing again? There were two movies about Studio 54. Yes. Michael Myers. Cinemas. Michael Myers. Right. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. 54. Him and Ryan Phillippe. A young Ryan Phillippe. I um, weirdly liked that movie, but yeah. 54 mm-hmm. it's i don't think it was good i just think i liked it i haven't seen it since i saw it in the theater i couldn't be get, i do remember thinking at the time that mike myers was going to get nominated for an oscar only because he was playing a real person right. and like if you do that you know the odds are pretty high um, um i think I mike think... myers thought he was going to get nominated for an oscar too <laughs> so. i think probably everybody did involved in that movie um yeah like it was weird studio 54 was like there were so many behind the musics about it and all kinds of stuff about oh, it. Yeah. And then like, I wonder what that, what, what the timing of that was. But then now obviously it's running. I mean, it's a huge with like not only studio 54, but 54 below. Right. Which uh, is a really cool venue underneath. Yeah. I would like to enjoy something there. So, but you prefer, so you've seen the mo- money, um, the movie a number of times. Though, yes. But I probably haven't watched it in over 10 years. Oh, okay. So I um, haven't seen it recently. Um, so sure. my memory of it isn't great. It's not as good as this, obviously, this this production. Yeah. Um, so when when you did, let me, I'm trying to get a time. So you'd seen it when you did it. Yes. Um, so okay. I saw it with my mom, I think, for my birth, my maybe my 18th birthday. But then okay. my school also went on a trip to see Cabaret. So I just went to see it again. Um, wow. And they were really, that was like within the same year I saw Cabaret at Studio 54 twice. Wow. I loved it though. I loved it. I had no, no that's problem great. seeing I'm not, it twice. No, I, I, would have, I would have no problem seeing it twice, especially if one of them, like in two very different circumstances. Were the seats really that different both times too? Um, I had to sit in the mezzanine when I went with my school. My mom and I sat in one of the little tables together when we went, just the two of us. Um, and Brad and I sat at one of the little tables when he and I went a couple of years ago. And that's definitely a better way to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it so behind the So there's a group of little tables near the front and then behind is like actual seating or is it, how is it set up? The orchestra is tables. The entire orchestra area is tables. And okay. just the mezzanine is regular seating. Okay. Um, so if you're if you're down in the orchestra, you're 
in what feels like this very intimate area that's so close to the stage. It's just so close. Mm-hmm. Everything is feels so close. They kept the bar open the entire time. <laughs> You're really on the bar. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. all you remember from this. <laughs> best, well, no, but that's important. Best show no, I've ever seen. Best show that I've would- ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Could tell you a thing that happens in the second act, but it's a great best show. I remember the Nazis and I remember the <laughs> right. pineapple. And that's really, I think, what's important. <laughs> I forgot about the pineapple till I listened to this album because that's I think I don't remember if that's excised from the movie or not, but there's certainly the song isn't yeah. uh, isn't in there. So yeah, that the I forgot all about the pineapple. It's got its own song. I think I, the pineapple song is a real low point. You think so? It couldn't please me more is a low point. Why do you no think no no the point? pineapple song? The it couldn't pine- that is the pineapple song. Oh, I thought it was just called the pineapple song. <laughs> then the if you brought me diamonds. If you brought me pearls, if you brought me roses like some other gents might bring to other girls, it could please me more than the gift I see, a pineapple for me. I think when we watched it, that was the song that I cared for the least. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are other ones that like really stood out that I definitely like remembered when we would go back and re-listen to the songs, uh, and that one I remembered not because I wanted to listen to it again. I mm. love it, and I actually, I think in a lot of ways, I love the subplot with uh, Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz. I would agree. I would agree with that mm-hmm. entirely. More than mm-hmm. I like the Sally Bowles storyline. Um, and that hmm. song to me is so sweet and so lovely, you know. I think the I song love I it. just can't get around about like the actual pineapple metaphor, you know. I like, guess. <laughs> I guess it is silly. I don't know if it's silly. I, I well, it is. I mean, it's a little silly. It, it does feel, though. I have to say, what's weird about a show like Cabaret is that. I mean, there are 19 songs on this CD or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I would say that 10 of them are music theater standards. And the other nine, you you just never hear. Right. So, like, when you go from songs like Vilkommen, I mean, huge. So famous. That might be, like, the most perfect opening song to... Uh, it's uh, certainly uh, one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Of, a, of of any show yeah I mean yeah. in terms of doing it's textbook and doing all the things you need an opening number to do it sets the mood it it uh, introduces you to the style of the show introduces it's, all the characters yes and really. it's catchy as all hell like, I mean it's just yeah what I also really love about it is like the actual music itself like I was saying before like it really lets you know that A you're in 1930s Berlin um, mm-hmm. but it also like the music has these like slight variants that happen in these like uh, key changes that also happen throughout it. And there's one point where there's just this like super nasty drum fill that goes on when he says that the yeah. orchestra is beautiful or whatever. Yes. And it does all of that seamlessly. There's no like jarring transition musically. Um, it's a very simple song. I mean, it's super simple. It just repeats itself mm-hmm. over right. and over and over again, basically, but does it really well, like you say. But like I, I particularly find... Key changes can often be jarring and awkward, mm-hmm. uh, and this one, I think it, it it shifts keys either two or three times. Maybe it just goes back to the original key at the end. But when the lady's singing, it's definitely a key change. Um, right, and you almost don't even notice it, you know. Yeah. And that's that's astonishing to me. Like. The best thing you can do with a key change is have people not really notice that it's a key change. Right. So it's also hard for a song to have, like you say, like one key change to ramp us up to the finale is one thing. But to have I would I think there are two, but it would not surprise me if there were three. Um, That's tricky. That's super to do it in the right moment at the right pace. Like you say, key changes can really screw you up. It's also almost eight minutes long. And you yeah. don't notice Very long. at all. Yes. I mean, just yeah. I am transfixed at every point of that opening number. I love it. But then you go right into So What, which is a song that I guarantee, like, again, I think most people have never heard. Yeah, and right. Outside of the show. And maybe it's just the music theater songs. 
like the '60s musical Candor and Ebb song, like because all the songs that are in the style of the nightclub are, I think, are the famous ones. Um, Welcome in, don't tell Mama. Mine hair, two ladies. Tomorrow belongs to me. Money. Uh, if you could see her. Cabaret. Yep. And I think Even that I've heard, I've heard a few, time. and maybe this time, which is a cabaret number, right? Well, she definitely performs it in the in the cabaret in the film. Okay. So, in the, so I don't know how it's staged in the show. It may be staged in such a way where we don't quite know where we are, or maybe we're in the cabaret or not. I can't um, quite remember. She must perform it in the cabaret club, but it's coming yeah. right off of, as they all do. It's coming right off of one of these like little intimate scenes in Cliff's room i think i think yes it's right when yeah now i'm trying to remember is it right when she discovers she's pregnant it is yeah it's in don't go right oh, after yeah. don't go I yeah f- for, um, i forgot about that subplot entirely wow the sally bowl's pregnancy yeah. pregnancy slash abortion that happens right it's for me well this is part of what cabaret is to me it's like the main plot becomes the subplot because the mm-hmm. nazi plot is so much more powerful to me uh and engaging and and as that ramps up in the music when i listen to the cast album it's almost like sally bowles disappears in a lot of ways and cliff certainly isn't significant on the cast album he's there in the beginning and the not end not in the second half i mean the only person who sing like Fräulein schneider has a song and the and herr schultz has a song mm-hmm. in act two and that and sally sings cabaret obviously. right but cliff um, has nothing to sing until the end until yeah, Cabaret comes back at the end of yeah. Act Two, Act Two is really all about the Nazi plot. And so it's like it is, this transition. It's an interesting construction in the sense that like you have Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz in a pretty typical love story with this comp- slight cultural complication that he's Jewish and that could be problematic. And you have Cliff and Sally having a pretty... I don't know about typical love story, but it's still a love story, sure. you know, just between these two people. And then it, as the Nazis take, uh, the, like one thing that we, we sort of skipped over in the plot is there is this Nazi character, right? Um, who uh, uh, Herr Ludwig, yes, um, who starts, I mean, who quickly rises through the party as the show goes on, and mm-hmm. to the point where he has like bodyguards with him in the second act who beat up Cliff. Um, he starts doing. He starts having Cliff run errands for him to make money, which was what gets us into the song "Money." And he sort of takes over the show. He warns yeah. uh, Fräulein Schneider against marrying Herr Schultz. He sings the reprise of "Tomorrow Belongs to Me" at the end of Act One. He he's it, it, he run and, yeah, and the, and the Nazi, as you say, these little subplots kind of dis, these these little typical love stories are eaten. By the Nazis, but that's in, in appropriate, a, which is what happened. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For the yeah, show. yeah. So it's kind of absolutely perfectly. And yeah, and tomorrow belongs to me. The whole reason it's sung is because he's going to leave the party. He's offended that um, Herr Schultz is is Jewish and is marrying Fräulein Schneider, and it's Fräulein. What is her name? Oh, what the is the other name? one? On. The prostitute. The other one, Fräulein Coast. Who says? the cast album like it just makes the hair on my arm stand up when the drums change and Mm -hmm. it goes from being this like dance like kind of i don't know if polka ish is the right word well because she's playing an accordion i mean it feels very it feels very diy when it starts the the music's diegetic like she's playing the accordion and he's singing and it's just sort of happening kind of politely and then the band the piano comes in and then the band comes in and the drums come in and it suddenly becomes an anthem. Like before, it's just like, it's like two people singing a folk song and then it becomes this terrifying anthem. The last time they go through it with everyone singing it, it really sounds like they're going to have a, you know, a march down the something. street. They're going to do it. something. Yeah, something's going to happen and, and then something does. And it then just takes boom, a little longer. the act is just over. 
you know yeah. and to me after that point it does that storyline eats up everything else that's happening with the right. character which is what happened i mean it's what happened right. in germany it's you can't yeah perfect representation of history really the the only song that i think that is a musical theater song and is not famous from the show but i that i really love and miss sort of in the movie not really but i, I do love the song is what would you do <gasps> a storm in the wind what would you do suppose your one frightened voice being told what the choice must be Tell me I will listen What would you do If you Were me This is a song I wanted to talk about as well Oh great, go ahead What do you have to say about what would you do? I just think it's maybe I don't care much as my favorite song in the show I would say but what would you do is maybe the most important song um Mm. and I think it's so well written lyrically because there are so many callbacks to uh tomorrow belongs to me and tomorrow belongs to me and I, I didn't have time to to write it down but there's a line about a storm Mm -hmm. and in what would you do she says with the storm and the wind, what would you do? And mm-hmm. I just think that's such great writing. Um, yeah. And then she also says in the, there's the verse about if, if keeping still was the only way to get by. And then she gets into, builds into the verse that ends with um, who isn't at war with anyone, not anyone. And she's an older woman and she's already lived through World War One in Germany. And it just has me feeling so empathetic towards her. Um, the it whole does, song it, puts me in her shoes. It does pay off um, So What very mm-hmm. well, which is her act one song. Right. Um, it, it, where she expresses her philosophy of like, like, like I was rich and now I'm poor and whatever, like things happen. And it is sort of a, it's like the ultimate extension of that right. nihilism is mm-hmm. this sort of like, I I can't like, it, it I don't know, but it's like this really great personal statement where she damns Cliff appropriately with those great lines of like, you'll just go off to Paris and if Paris is boring, you'll go somewhere else. Like, I can't do that. Right. Young and, people have it so easy. They have all the right. solutions because they're free to go do whatever they want. And she's saying, well, I need to just get by until I die, essentially. And it's also the thing that like Herr Schultz isn't exactly, he's not calling for her to take off and do something either. He keeps saying everything's going to be fine. Everything will be fine like, here. Yeah. This will all pass. These people, like I know Germans, they're cool. <laughs> It'll be fine. I'm a German. Like he, there's a really touching scene he has with Cliff, where he's like, "Do you just don't understand Germans? Like we're fine. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it." And Cliff is sort of like, "Are you out of your mind?" Right. Uh, appropriately, um, that like this is not going to be fine. And of course, we we as the audience know, right? It is it is not going to be fine. Um, and so and then it isn't. Fi- I mean, well, actually, we. I mean, yeah. Depending on how you stage it, it it isn't fine or it is. Um, I wonder about that that direct ending. I don't I don't know like that how that makes me feel. That shocked me when I saw it because so so it ends, lights go out, and everybody's sitting there silent for probably about ten seconds before I turn to Katie and say like, "Is that the end?" Right, and, and she goes, "Yeah, that's the end." <laughs> I was like, "Are you sure that's the end?" And then. Like, you really kind of just sit in the dark in silence for a moment and the lights come on and the cast bows in absolute silence and you just leave feeling (laughs) bleak. It is, it is a bleak, bleak, like to an otherwise like fun show. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, as it gets through the second act, I mean, it obviously becomes less and less fun, but I mean that is that ending just leaves you feeling like I don't know empty. Yes, pretty empty. Mm-hmm. 
I'm and good with intentionally that. so. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's kind of how I, I I feel that with the the film and the original production. I wonder if the war being so close, like you had to kind of be, you could be more subtle, right? Because the memory was a little more fresh. Sure. Uh, but once you get into 1998 and it's much later, you know, the the war is 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 now 50 years plus in the past. You have to be a little more overt mm-hmm. with your, you know, you can't rely on people's memories to get you kind of halfway there. You have to do it like right in their face. Be like, no, this led to that, led to this. And led it's to this horrible. thing you read about in history class, right? And you feel this sad now. Yeah. Yes, right. And you feel so <laughs> sad. And would you feel less sad if the stage were just blank? I don't know if you would, you know. Right. In 1966, you're going to have a ton of audience members who had lived through World War II. In 1998, you don't have that anymore. So, right. yeah, but, I but think I that could be part of it. Also, by the by the by the end of the show, two people that I do not care about anymore are Sally Bowles and Cliff. Mm-hmm. I do care about the pansexual nightclub MC mm-hmm. and the elderly Jewish produce dealer. Yeah. Right. Like these are the people that are surely not going to make it. Right. So, right. Whereas Sally Bowles is just going to run off to probably back to Mayfair and or back or to Paris or just to like Paris. for a lunch night. No, see, I think I don't think I don't think no. Sally makes it. I don't think Sally makes I it. I honestly I, agree I, with you. I don't think Sally Bowles I, comes I, I out think, of this I too, think, too well. I think Cliff makes it. Um eventually like i it's it's also kind of like a nod that he's going to paris which mm-hmm. you know you've got only a couple of years there buddy um so i yeah i don't think sally makes it i i, I think that sally is not not long for this world uh, even if when the you show's over. take cabaret as your cue i think mm-hmm. i mean just considering the again the lyrics to the song cabaret she's close to done here you know yeah. i don't think she's going to recover from these events and well, there's no way that like once world war ii breaks out that a british citizen in berlin right is cool like that's just not not going to be a thing but also yeah. there's enough evidence in the show that she's probably a drug addict and yes. you know she is she is not living her best life she's not living say. an easy yeah. life for sure that's true and the show does not paint it. I will say one thing the movie kind of does is make her life seem, I don't know if glamorous is the right word. She's cool in yeah. the movie. and She's you know, very of, sad in the show. Yeah, she's very sad in the show. She's a little sad in the movie. She's super sad in the show. Yeah. Um, and one of the sort of tricky things that I, I've heard that um, Christopher Isherwood, who wrote the book that this is based on, uh, repeatedly said that one of the big problems with the musical is that the real Sally Bowles was not talented. Um, and you can't have a non-talented singer play Sally Bowles in the musical because the audience wouldn't tolerate it. But like he's like, everybody who's ever played Sally Bowles has been too good of a singer and too talented, in his opinion. And it's pretty funny. Like, it's a really like, great... <laughs> you forget that like these are real people. He based all these things on real people. Right. And it, it just... Yeah, it's just a funny little comment of been like it was the big comment he made. It was about Liza Minnelli being like Sally Bowles was not Judy Garland's daughter. Like that just wasn't her so, style. This brings me back to again why I think the '98 version is the perfect version. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying this as a dig to Natasha Richardson. I uh-huh. love her performance on this cast album and I didn't get to see her play the part on Broadway I think by the time I saw it she had already moved on and I saw the actress who replaced her I'm sorry actress that I don't know your name I feel terrible about that she's gonna be furious Um, when she hears you say that you know she listens to this yeah but I love Natasha Richardson on this cast album I think that she Jennifer Jason Lee did I see Jennifer Jason Lee on Broadway? <laughs> no. It's got to be somebody after. This was 98. I saw it in 90, 99, 2000. All right, 99, it was it was Jennifer Jason Lee. <laughs> Stop oh. it. Too no. Hang on, hang on. There's more. Okay, hang on. Okay, okay. Susan Egan, 2000. Did you say uh, Susan Egan? 
Susan Egan. Yes. That's who I saw. That is who I okay, saw. Okay, cool. I'm not yeah. familiar with her other than seeing her in Cabaret also, twice, but she uh, was excellent. Also, Gina Gershon played Sally Bowles no, a little bit. No, Susan Egan, I the... recognize the name now. Mm. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah, she was in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Natasha Richardson is amazing on this cast album, but her mm-hmm. voice isn't beautiful. You know what I mean? Like, you could... Yeah. Through her singing, it's not unpleasant to the audience at all. In fact, to me, it's wonderful. But it's perfect for the... I can still believe the character. Liza Mm -hmm. Minnelli, when I watch the movie, is a little too, like... But she's Liza Minnelli. She's too Liza Minnelli. And I think Liza Minnelli is great. But I believe Natasha Richardson as this yeah. character more it, it was a problem i had seeing patty lapone and gypsy sure yeah where i never believed for a moment that this woman wasn't confident right in herself <laughs> like as mama rose like mama rose is supposed to have a vulnerability to her and patty lapone i mean let me tell you she blew the damn doors I'm off sure the place she did. Like, and i you know that's what you're paying for so whatever but like i never believed that in mama in rose's turn that she was crumbling she right so, like because she's not patty lapone is nothing if not confident and yeah liza minnelli's good she's yeah, a good she's singer amazing. it's kind of it's kind of her thing you know so like it's her and the movie much to its credit i think doesn't try to make her not a good singer right. it's just that becomes part of the character but i do think you're right i think natasha richardson and she did win a tony for this um does an excellent job of of she sings like a nightclub singer in Berlin. Not a right. bad one, but just like a nightclub singer in Berlin. And her performances aren't super polished. I, I think in the 2014 revival when they ca- they cast people who were not, people who could sing, but people who weren't known for their singing. I mean, it started with uh, Michelle Williams. Yes. Who can certainly sing, mm-hmm. but has a very a light voice, a light t- and, I, and I think Emma Stone, I think has a better voice than Michelle Rich- uh, Williams in terms of training, but it's still that same like, we're casting actors who can sing, not singers who can act. Right. And I, and like I think that's that the right choice. choice. Yeah. And I think Emma that's the Stone choice. was great. We saw Emma Stone and she was excellent. It, but it gets it gets tricky when you then go into the music theater numbers where the person is just singing. You know what I mean? Like and it's not in the nightclub anymore. And like it's that ter- it's that weird thing of like in the fiction of the story, she can't sing, but when they're singing or can't sing well, but when you're singing your feelings in a musical everybody should be able to sing otherwise why would you be singing you know what i mean it's a weird like it's kind of a paradox you set up for yourself a little bit which nobody but people like me care about but i actually think there's a nice consistency to it on this cast album that and and in the production that the cast album accompanies there doesn't seem to be a focus on singing beautifully the way that you would typically expect in a cast album alan cummings has a great voice but when you get to i don't care much it's not really about singing it well in fact what i love about that song is he kind of growls into the ends of the lines and it it doesn't Mm. sound pretty and it doesn't highlight his best parts of his voice but i think most of the singing is centered more around the acting than around the technical singing. Um, mm-hmm. Even with Fräulein Schneider and, you know, other characters, when they do Tomorrow Belongs to Me and Fräulein Kost starts singing, it feels like it's directed so that it's a real person singing, not a musical theater actor singing. I, I, I do feel like I need to point out a little bit that the uh, this this is a revival... Also, like Chicago, another Candor and Ebb show that outpaced the original production, and the original production was not a slouch. The original production ran for eleven hundred and sixty-five performances, and the revival ran for any like, guesses? It was like twenty-five hundred. It was six 20, years. Yeah, twenty-three seventy-seven. It ran for I think almost exactly twice as long as the original did. So that's again, yeah, from ninety-eight to two thousand four. Yeah, and. Uh, it, it crushed it. Can I tell you the two embarrassing things that happened when I was in Cabaret? Oh, I wish you would. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I'm going to say no to that. Yeah, so, <laughs> don't you dare. Don't you right. dare. Don't, no, 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 no. <laughs> they're, they're not 
really embarrassing. They're just things that I had to do in the staging. But what makes them embarrassing was that my little old grandmother was in the audience. Uh. And she was so spectacularly proud. You know, I had just, I was a freshman at UMBC. They came up spring semester, you know, from New Jersey to see me perform. And in the very first scene, I was the Kit Kat Club girl who gets spanked by the MC. <laughs> And that I'm like a father to her business. And then in Two Ladies, I was much more athletic at 19 than I am now. Somewhere in the dance break of the song, I did a handstand, split my legs open and poked their heads between my legs while I was in a handstand. And it's like, hello, grandma. She (laughs) loved it. She didn't have a problem with any of it. But I was mortified until after the show because my little 80-year-old grandmother had never seen me do anything quite like that before. And she was like, I loved it, sweetie. It was so much fun. So... (laughs) Well, if she went to paper mill all the time, I'm sure yeah, she's seen she was stuff. Okay. She like had, she's not. She was 80. She had seen plenty of things. Just right. Life. I was going to say, she's not, you know. But I was, you know. Old people are cool. They, they get it. I was know. her granddaughter. I didn't know how she'd feel about it. She was fine. She thought it was a great time. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts from the convenience of your iPhone and or check out the original cast on Stitcher if that's how you get down. My thanks to Katie and Brad for getting online and talking to me today. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal.